Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 12. He says, by Silvanus, so he's just addressing He's just addressing these people. Sylvanus was a co-worker of his uh, who had probably carried the letter to them. He says, By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this, everything I just wrote, he's saying, that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's just pray one more time. Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks for your word. Uh, thanks for this letter. Lord, thank you uh, that your Holy Spirit inspired it um, and has given it to us as a gift. Father, I pray that today it would be life to our soul. I pray, Lord, that today that it would go down deep and that you would open the eyes of our heart to be able to see wonderful things from it. Father, please right now, in Jesus' name and because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, would you fill me with your spirit? Help me to proclaim your word clearly and passionately as it deserves to be spoken. And Father, would you fill everyone here also with your spirit, Lord, and help them to hear from you this morning. God, we love you so much. We thank you that we get to be here uh, in this time, in this place, in this space this morning um, to worship you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So again, here at the end of the letter, the, these, are, these are little parts of the, the epistles or the letters in the New Testament that I used to often skip over, kind of, or I would just kind of gloss over them if I was reading through a book because the theology, the, the meat, I thought, was more in the, um, in the main portion of the letter, but many times at the end of many of uh, Paul's letters as well, who wrote more letters than anybody else in the New Testament, there are just these little kind of like postscripts that just remind us that, that these writers, uh, Paul in some places and Peter of course here, was writing to real people, real people like you and me that lived in a real time and place in time-space history about 2,000 years ago. Um, Many times in the Middle East, or in this case, kind of scattered throughout the Roman, the Roman Empire. Uh, and they were trying to follow Jesus. They were trying to follow Jesus, just like you and I are. And many times we think that we probably don't have much in common with these ancient writers or these ancient hearers, these ancient recipients of this letter. Uh, but man, we have so much more in common with them than we could ever possibly imagine. And I love what Peter does here uh, in this closing because you can kind of get that from any of the postscripts at the end um, of any of the letters. But Peter, especially here, man, he just brings it home in just an epic way. And I want to start by just pointing out to you what he says in verse 13. It says that she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Sends you greetings. Now here's what I, what, what I love about this is that is that Peter is not writing from Babylon. Babylon is a debunked kingdom at this point. We're going to go back and review a little history about Babylon in the Bible here because there's, the Bible has quite a bit to say about it, actually. But um, almost all scholars and commentators agree that Peter's probably writing from Rome at this time, but he calls Rome Babylon. And what he's doing is he's 
reminding us, he's reminding the readers, the hearers back then, as well as us today, he's reminding us that we are part of a much, 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 much bigger story, an absolutely epic battle uh, that we forget that we're a part of many times. Because you and I, whether you realize this or not, I'm telling you, and hopefully this will make sense with what I'm about to say as, we, as I unfold this this morning, but I'm telling you guys, you and I still live in Babylon. We still live in Babylon. Babylon absolutely was a very real city in time, place, in time space history that existed thousands of years ago. Uh, but in the Bible, it is that. I'm not negating the literal aspect of it. But it is also more than that. It's a, it's a system. It's a way of worldly thinking that isn't just a place where we live, but it's something that can actually live inside of our hearts. And it's not good. I want to back up just real quick and kind of give you a, just very briefly a sweeping overview of Babylon throughout the entire Bible. And man, we don't have time to nearly get into anything. This is a massive study. If you'd ever want to take the time to do it, 287 times just in the Old Testament alone, the, the city or the nation of Babylon is referenced. Many times the people that live inside Babylon are not just referred to as Babylonians, but they're also referred to as Chaldeans. And so 287 times Babylon, the place, is referenced in the Old Testament, but also another 82 times the word Chaldeans is mentioned, these people that lived within Babylon. And then you also have it, uh, Babylon appearing 12 times in the New Testament. Again, even though by this time Babylon was nothing. At one time it was the most epic kingdom uh, in all of the world, uh, but by this time it's totally debunked, yet Peter picks up on it here and says that he is writing from Babylon, and I'm telling you today, many of us still live in, or all of us actually still live in Babylon. If you go, if you want to trace the history of Babylon, you have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11 to the Tower of Babel. You guys remember this? from Sunday school class, the Tower of Babel, and what happened there. So here's what happened, is that uh, Genesis 1 and 2 are really, really good, and after that, it gets bad really, really quick. In fact, by Genesis chapter 6, just six chapters in, God is declaring that he's going to wipe out the entire human race, except for Noah and his family, because the entire human race, the thoughts of their hearts are only ever evil continually. That's it. And so God says, I'm not going to put up with this. I'm going to start over with Noah. And so he does. He wipes everything out in righteous, holy judgment, and he starts over with Noah. Noah was not a perfect man, okay, by any stretch, but he did fear the Lord and did walk with him. And so again, after, after uh, the flood wipes everybody out, God essentially starts over with Noah and with his family, and he gives Noah the same commission that he'd given to Adam at the beginning when he created Adam and Eve. He says, go fill the earth, be fruitful, and multiply. So God's command, because we are image bearers of God, is to fill the whole earth with his image. And so we are to be fruitful and multiply and to spread over the face of the earth. But even though God had already wiped everybody out with a flood and he's starting over with Noah, this is not what the people of God do. In fact, they, uh, instead of spreading out over the face of the earth, they all gather together in one place. And in Genesis chapter 11, they gather together in this place. I'll just read it here. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Again, they're all together. They're not spreading out over the face of the earth. They're migrating to this one plain. And they say to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city, listen, and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. That's what they declare. 
God's just wiped everybody out and they're not fearing God. Let's not make a name for God. Let's not make a name for this holy and righteous God in whom we are created in the image of and that has just showed us that he is powerful enough to wipe everybody out if we don't walk in his ways. But they say, let us build a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. They didn't want to be dispersed. They were directly opposed to the direct command that God had given them to be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. They're going to come together and build a tower into the heavens, make a name for themselves. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And again, it's, it's kind of mocking language. They're like, oh, this is so big. Well, let me come down and look at this tiny little thing that you guys are trying to do. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. He says, sin is going to be on the rise again, and nothing will be, um, nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, the name of it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And there, I don't have time to go into this, but it's kind of neat, is that there's like a, there's a Hebrew play on words. So Babel, B, and again, this is the letter B, the letter A, we're not in the Hebrew language, but the way it kind of transliterates out, it's B-A-B-E-L, it means the city, the city. That's what they call it. Like, this is going to be the city. This is the place, okay? This is the city. But what the writer's saying here in Hebrews, what God does is, is he, said, he says, we're going to call it Babel, B-A-B-A-L, instead of E-L, which in Hebrew means confused. Confused. So the people are saying, this is going to be the city, man. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We will not obey God. We're going to make a name for us, and we're going to build a city that reaches up to the heavens. And I love this, man. This will preach, and I, I can't stay here because we got to go on, but... God says, no, 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 you are confused. You are confused about who you are, and you're confused about who I am, and you're confused about who you are in light of who I am, and I'm going to come down, and I'm going to confuse the language, and you can say you're going to do this all you want, but if I oppose you, you won't do anything. And see, this is where we get the roots now of this, what I'm talking about, that Babel isn't just a place, it was a place, I'm not denying that, but that it's also a system is that this is what lives in each and every human heart. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, it talks about the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's this, it's this idea of Babel living inside of us, that we will oppose God and that we will do what we want to do and that God, we're not, we're not going to be dispersed. We're not going to live for him. We're not going to fill the earth and glorify him. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And God says, you're confused about who you are. And folks, we need to start there this morning. Amen is that if we're going to understand anything from the truth of the Word of God and anything about this story that we're caught up in, we better start with the truth that God is God and we are not. That we can say we're going to build a tower to the heavens, which we won't even actually be able to do, but He is in the heavens. And no man can ever build anything that ascends to God. The good news of the gospel is that God says, I will come down to you and I will be with you. That the man from heaven, the God-man, Jesus Christ, because man could not ever build anything, even if God would have let him alone, to, to, to come up to the heavens, the good news of the gospel is that God says, I will come down, and I will die. I will lay down my life for you sinful people. And so here you have the roots of what then became the nation and the empire of Babylon. Babylon. 
Again, there's much that could be said. Just one more place to highlight it very quickly, but in the book of Daniel. You remember Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. By this time, the nation of Israel, because they had rebelled, even though Babylon was a wicked kingdom, God used a wicked kingdom to chastise his people because they did not follow him. And so he allows Nebuchadnezzar to come in to take the nation of Judah into captivity, into Babylon. And so Daniel, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are taken into Babylon. And over and over and over again, uh, you still see this same theme from the beginning, that even though God is at the time using Nebuchadnezzar to chastise his people, to discipline his people, because they had rebelled against them, you still, still see this same spirit of self-will and of rebellion and of doing what they want. In fact, it's kind of summarized very well in Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar, who was the ruler of the Babylonian kingdom, which was the greatest kingdom in the world at this time, one day Nebuchadnezzar is out walking on his rooftop, and it says that at the, 12 of, at the end of 12 months, as he, being Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king said, is this not great Babylon, listen to the language, which I have built, sound familiar from Genesis chapter 11, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. And while the words were still on the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat the grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules. Do you hear this? It's the same thing as Genesis chapter 11. We will make a name for ourselves, God says, no you won't. Nebuchadnezzar says, I have done all this. He says, no you haven't. And this great, majestic king, Nebuchadnezzar, is then driven away and he becomes like a wild beast for seven years as his fingernails grew out like talons. His hair became long and matted like an animal. And God says, this will happen until you know that the most high rules. Again, guys, it's the same thing. If we're going to understand the story that we're a part of, we have to understand that he is God and that we are not. Heaven, heaven rules. And so, again, there, there's so much that could be said here. Um, but as you then come into the New Testament, uh, you have Peter referencing Babylon here, Babylon here. And again, in verse 13, he says, she. Almost all commentators believe, and I completely agree, he's not talking about one individual woman. He's talking about the church. The church over and over and over again in the New Testament is referred to as the bride of Christ. And the reason biblically that I understand this to be true is because by the time you come to the book of Revelation, you have Babylon mentioned a lot. And, and, and Babylon, again, it is a city, but it's more than a city. It is epitomized and it is personified in Revelation chapter 17 by this great prostitute. I want you to listen to this, okay? Revelation chapter 17. It says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. Listen, and he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Listen, and I saw a woman, this great prostitute, sitting on a scarlet beast, that was full of blasphemous names 
and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of a mystery. Now listen. On her forehead was written a name of a mystery. Here's what's written. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And John says, and I saw the woman drunk, listen, with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, he says, I marveled greatly. Now listen, guys, this is, this is so epic. Like what the Bible is telling us here. Because I know we all walked in here this morning and we're like, oh man, so, you know, time changed last week. I'm still, you know, didn't get enough sleep and, you know, sipping our coffee. And we're just kind of like walking in. We kind of meander in. And then the songs get going and we're like, okay, all right, yeah, Jesus, woohoo, here and now, you know, preach to me, Eric. And guys, <laughs> we're a part of something that is so much bigger than we could ever possibly imagine. Do not tell me that your life does not matter. Do not tell me that your life has no purpose. Do not tell me that God does not have good things in store for you and that you are part of something that is absolutely exhilarating to be a part of if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because one of the meta-narratives here that is flowing throughout the Scriptures is that there is this kingdom of Babylon, and there's the kingdom of God. And in fact, again, just to make this clear, in the book of Revelation, and we just don't have time to go through all the scriptures, okay? But you see, Babylon is this wicked city. It is also referred to and personified in a evil, sinful prostitute lady. And you have that that is contrasted over and against in the book of Revelation, this new Jerusalem, who is also referred to as the bride of Christ coming down out of heaven. And what Peter is referencing here, I believe, coming back to this text, and that he wants his original hearers and that he wants us all to hear, is that, guys, we are a part of this epic battle between good and evil, between the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, being a part of the bride of Christ, and between Babylon and the great prostitute who wants to corrupt the entire world. And here's the tension that we live in. And whether you acknowledged it or not, or whether you were aware of this when you walked in here this morning, it makes no difference. You are still a part of it. Is that just like he says here, she, the church, who is at Babylon. We, this morning, the church, guys, we are still living in Babylon. And I guarantee you that maybe you didn't use this language this past week, but I promise you that this past week, if you know Jesus as a Savior, and you're attempting in any way to live for him, that you bumped into Babylon this past week. That you bumped into temptation and desire and evil and wickedness and injustice. And it is all a part of Babylon. And what Peter has been telling us in the midst of this entire letter, and that I believe he summarizes again so, just so awesomely. Is awesomely a word? Probably not awesomely here in these last couple verses 
is he's telling us how to live in the midst of Babylon. He's telling us how to live, and he's been telling us how to live a godly life in the midst of this wickedness all around us that, again, isn't just a place, but it's a way of thinking, and it's a spirit of disobedience that wants to get into our hearts. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Is that enough Bible for you to believe me? Okay, again, I'm not just like, it's real. There's so much more that could be said on it. Um, I understand that maybe you've never heard of this before or thought of this or thought of this before. Um, But again, this is the way, like again, Babylon, it was a real place, but it's also more than just a place. It's a system that wants to get inside of us. And so what I want to look at the rest of the time here in this passage is, is just simply what I believe Peter has for us is just how, how do we do this? Okay, Eric, you say we're living in the midst of Babylon, this great prostitute that wants to make us drunk with worldliness and with evil and with sin, and we know who's behind it all, Satan himself, okay? But how do we live? How does the church thrive? How does she who is in Babylon, uh, who is likewise chosen, how does, how does she live for the honor and glory of Christ? Here's, here's the answer, okay? One sentence, and then I'm just going to unpack this. The church The bride of Christ has survived in the midst of Babylon throughout the ages and still today through faithful workers who are firmly planted in an unfailing gospel. That's it. Through faithful workers who are firmly planted in an unfailing gospel. Let me show you where I'm getting this from. First of all, the faithful workers part. There's just two of them listed here. So many more. So many more back then, so many more today, all around the world, through faithful workers, and not just, not just the big names, not just the all-stars that we always think about, like Peter and like Paul, but guys like, they're listed here in verse 12, Silvanus. Silvanus is, a, is another name for Silas. Uh, you might be more familiar with Silas, because Silas accompanied Paul in the book of Acts on his second, on his second missionary journey. Um, and here, Paul lists just two faithful, or I'm sorry, Peter lists just two of these faithful workers Again, could be men or women that are faithfully and committed to carrying out the mission that God has sent before. In verse 12, he says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. And again, the language here, we don't have time to go into it, doesn't matter that much, but it's not just that Silvanus was kind of dictating this letter, or that Peter was dictating this letter uh, to Silvanus or Silas and that he was writing it down, but Silvanus probably carried the letter to the church. Peter's probably in Rome. And Silvanus or Silas carries this letter out to the church that is throughout the Roman Empire that is, that is uh, in the midst of going through this intense persecution, as we've looked at over and over again um, throughout the scriptures. And here's, here's the deal, and here's why if the church is going to survive, if the bride of Christ is going to thrive in the midst of Babylon, is that, guys, it, it will always go forward um, totally under the sovereignty of God, with the, by the empowerment of God's Spirit, but it goes forward through faithful workers. Faithful workers, just like you and I. Just like Sylvanus and also Mark, who's listed down in verse 14. And man, if, if, guys, if we're going to be faithful in the midst of the Babylon in which we live, in our day and age, if we're going to be faithful, then it's going to take faithful men and women to be committed to the mission of God, which is to preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. And can I say something? I've had this little, you guys know, there's a phrase I've just been hearing a lot lately. Do you know what I mean when I say side hustle? Yeah? 
everybody's into having a side hustle. So everybody works their job, and then they're just they're doing the side hustle, trying to get ahead. Like, you know, you're, you go to your 9 to 5, but then you know you're selling stuff on eBay, or you're selling stuff on Etsy or Instagram, or, or, you know, or you're working a second job, or you got this you know, at-home business where you're, you're making stuff. Listen, I, I just, I, I got to say this. The mission of God is not a side hustle. It's not a side hustle. But I'll be honest with you, we treat it like it is. We treat it like it is. Jesus Christ did not shed his blood to purchase for himself a people, a church, that treated what he came to do as a side hustle. He came to redeem for himself a people that are all in to take this gospel to the nations and to live in the midst of Babylon faithfully and to overcome it. And he gives us these awesome promises like, I will build my church and the, king, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now in that imagery there, the gates, of hell, the gates don't go anywhere. Gates don't move. Gates are firm. Jesus says, I want you to storm the gates. You don't storm the gates as a soldier if it's just a side hustle for you. Guys, we, and here's the thing, please hear me this morning. I love you. We are all, I feel myself getting aggressive. I need to calm down a little bit. Okay, like this is, guys, this is for all of us. This is for every single one of you this morning that knows Jesus Christ as Savior. This is not for the full-time preachers. This is not for the pastors. This is not for the missionaries. This is not just for the guys that, that go to seminary or have a Bible degree. It's for you. And it is an epic battle that God has called us into. And if we treat it as a side hustle, we can't then say, well, you know, I tried that church thing. And yeah, I mean, I went on a missions trip one time. And I mean, it was okay. But, you know, I mean, I don't really have time for that. And it really wasn't that great. And I don't really get what all the hype is about. It's because you're not all in. If you treat it as a side hustle, you get side hustle results. And, and with all of my heart, guys, I, I just, for, for us, I, I, you know, I can control almost nothing. You can control almost nothing. God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. Heaven rules, as we just said. But I'm telling you over and over and over again throughout the scriptures, you just will not find this idea that, yeah, you know, I mean, I serve when I can. This Jesus thing, yeah, I mean, you know, when it's convenient. You know, yeah, I mean, the church, you know, and, you know, the people of God, being with the people of God, and, you know, telling others about Christ. I mean, you know, it doesn't conflict with my schedule. You will not find it. And at some point, here's the thing, I know that, you know, we all want God just to float over us and sprinkle us with pixie dust that will make us magically mature. It's not the way it works. It's just not the way it works. The way that you mature in Christ is by following him. And following him implies getting up from where you're at and going where he's going. Be committed to moving where he's moving. That's how the process of maturity happens inside of us. And here, again, um, how does the church thrive in the midst of Babylon? Through faithful workers firmly planted in an unchanging gospel. You've got Silvanus, and you've also got Mark mentioned down in verse 13. Here's the thing about Mark. I love this. So, man, Mark, Mark messed up big time. Do you guys know the story in the book of Acts? So Mark was a young man. This is the same guy that wrote the gospel of Mark. And he, on the first missionary journey, when Paul goes out with Barnabas, 
Mark goes along, just as kind of like their sidekick. They're kind of mentoring him as they go. And man, things get difficult, and Mark is like, peace, I'm out of here. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're getting beaten, and, and, Mark, and Mark's like, I can't do this, and he flees. In fact, so much so that when they come back then to Antioch, the place where they've been sent out from, they, they're getting ready to go out on a second missionary journey, and they're going, getting ready to go out again, and by this time, Mark has kind of come back with his tail tucked between his legs, and he's like, I want to go with you guys again, and Paul's like, no way. And Barnabas is like, yeah, yes way. We need to take him, you know. We need to take him along. So, and, and Paul and Barnabas get in such a, a tiff over this that they split ways. And Barnabas takes Mark and goes to Cyprus, his, his uh, kind of home island. And Paul takes Silas, who's also known as Silvanus here. And then they go their way and they go back through the same way him and Barnabas went the first time, re-strengthening the churches and visiting a couple other places. But here's what I love about this is that Mark legitly messed up, and Paul, I mean, Paul was, you can see in that, like, Paul was pretty hardcore, okay? You didn't want to mess up on Paul's watch. But here, even towards the end, and even Paul says it at the very end of one of the last letters that he writes, 2 Timothy, that he says that Mark, was, Mark is useful to him for ministry. Mark didn't give up, even though he'd failed, even though he'd washed out before. And I just wonder this morning, you know, as I'm, you know, we're hammering away on being faithful, like this is how the church, this is how the mission goes forward, this is how we thrive in the midst of Babylon. I wonder if there's some here this morning who are maybe thinking, man, Eric, I, I did try that, and I washed out. Well, so did Mark. It doesn't matter if you fail. It doesn't matter if you give in to fear. What matters is, are, are you going to get back up when you fall? Like, are you going to get up, and are you going to keep going? And Mark is a testimony to that, the fact that being faithful doesn't mean being perfect, but it means continuing to get back up and continuing to go, okay? So faithful workers, again, the, the next phrase, firmly planted in an unchanging gospel. Here, here's, here's the biggest part of this. Yeah, you have to be faithful and committed to the mission, but man, also firmly planted in an unfailing gospel. I love this. He says, I've written briefly to you exhorting and declaring. Everybody say exhorting and declaring. Yeah. What's he declaring? Usually when the words exhorting and declaring are used in the scriptures, it's like, it's, a, it's an imperative. It's something like, you must do this. Like he's telling people to do something. But what Peter uses this strong language, these strong words here of exhorting and declaring he hasn't been exhorting and declaring, I mean, he has been exhorting and declaring them to, to, do, to do some stuff, but that's not primarily how he sums it up. He says, I've been exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. I'll tell you something that changed me um, several years ago, uh, before we even started Mercy Hill, is I came to the understanding one day, the Lord showed me, that I was most passionate. So if you guys know me a little bit, like even a little bit ago, I was like, ah, I'm getting too, okay, just calm down, Eric, okay? And I, I tend to be like that, and um, you know, it is what it is. But the Lord showed me that it's not right of me to be most passionate about telling people to do something. What I need to be most passionate about is telling people what he has done. And see, and, and that's what, it's little phrases like this that, that confirm that. Peter's saying, I've been exhorting and declaring. What have you been exhorting and telling us to do? No, I'm telling you what God has done, he says. I've been exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And so when I say the gospel and the church has gone forward in the midst of Babylon through faithful workers firmly planted in an unfailing gospel, this is what I'm talking about. 
And notice here, this is very important, guys, what is central to the gospel? Grace. And he says, true grace. True grace. Implying there's a false grace. Do you guys know that there's a false grace today? There is a message of false grace that is proclaimed and propagated everywhere. And I hope that we don't buy into it. Very quickly, if I could just go back and summarize the letter in at least four ways to know whether or not you are standing in the true grace, whether or not you are firmly planted in the true grace of God in this unfailing gospel, okay? And it all has to do with how you define grace as he says it here. Again, he's summarizing everything he's just said. He sums right, summarizes it as this is what true grace is. Okay, so a couple of diagnostic questions here quickly. Number one, does your definition of grace give you a grid for suffering under the sovereign hand of God for the purpose of bringing him glory? Let me say that again. Does your definition of grace give you a grid for or allow for suffering under the sovereign hand of God for the purpose of bringing him glory? See, some people say, yeah, yeah, the grace of God. Well, if we have the grace of God that, you know, nothing bad is ever going to happen to us, or if it does, and it's just the devil, and we just need to, you know, rebuke it, and it'll, it'll just go away. And that's stupid, and it's overly simplistic, way overly simplistic. Again, actually, what Nate read earlier, here's what he says at the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Peter's saying, everything I've been writing to you is about true grace. Well, do you have a definition of grace that gives you a grid for the fact that, you know what, sometimes things are going to be difficult, but this difficulty has not come to me in a vacuum because, I, because God, you know, Psalm 139, he hems me in behind and before he is above and below me. Anything that wants to get to me, it's got to go through him first. And so if there's suffering, if there's difficulty in my life, then almighty sovereign God has allowed it, and he has allowed it for this end because this is the end to which he is working all things, and that is for his honor and for his glory. And if you don't have a definition of grace that allows for suffering by a good sovereign God, then you need to change your definition of grace because you don't have the real one. That's part of true grace. Secondly, does your definition of grace call you to pursue holiness and Christ-likeness at all times and at all costs? Does grace drive holiness in your life? Chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, he says, as obedient children who are in the midst of tremendous suffering, suffering that you and I know nothing of, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Also, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, he says, for what credit is it is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called 
Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Does your definition of grace call you, drive you to pursue holiness and Christ-likeness, even when it's difficult, even in the midst of suffering? You still say, my number one priority is I must be like Jesus. Third, does your definition of grace cause you to value and pursue biblical community? That if we have been bought by the precious blood of Christ and he's redeemed us, does it drive us to be in the church or does it drive us just to be an individual? Because if you have a grid for grace that just says, you know what, I got this grace thing now, so I'm good, see you guys, that's not real grace. Grace causes us to be together. Chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, remember this image when we were talking about this, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Also, verses 9 and 10, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Excuse me, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Does the gospel that you believe and your definition of grace cause you to want to be with God's people? Because that's what it should do. And if it doesn't, then you don't have the right definition of grace. And finally, Does your definition of grace cause you to magnify and rejoice in always, only, and ever in the precious blood of Christ? Is your definition of grace find its source? Does it cause you to magnify and rejoice in the precious blood of Christ? Chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Chapter 2, verses 24 In 25, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. In chapter three, beginning of verse 18, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Guys, this is why we do communion every single week. We don't believe, you hear me say this all the time, but I'll say it over and over and over again as long as God allows me to be up here, okay? And that is, is that we take this every week not because actually taking of these physical elements saves us, but in the end, you and I have nothing except Jesus Christ blooded, hanging on a tree, bearing in himself the wrath of God that we deserve. And if the grace that you say that you've received comes from any other source other than that, then you do not know the true grace of God. When we understand grace, it will always cause us to exalt in the cross. If you have a grace that says, you know what, I was good today and I was bad yesterday, so yesterday was a bad day, but today's a good day because I'm good today, you do not have a right understanding of grace. 
Because at the cross, Jesus outed you. He died because he's saying, none of these guys are good in and of themselves. I have to take upon myself the punishment that they deserve. And he did that out of a heart of love. Again, we're finishing up First Peter today, and I, uh, I'm kind of sad to be finishing it up because I've really liked the book, but I also am kind of excited because I've just had so many just kind of just kind of random one-off sermons that are rolling around in my heart and mind and things I want to talk about over the next couple weeks. And I might just do an entire sermon on this, but we'll talk a little bit about it now. There's just this little phrase that, again, has just been rolling around inside me. But it's just simply this, that grace saves us, grace grows us, grace sends us, and grace keeps us. Let me say that again. Grace saves us, grace grows us, grace sends us, and grace keeps us. Guys, this life of following Jesus is about the grace of God from first to last. And it is about us trusting in that. And so many people are saved by grace, but then they live a life of works. And they're saved. They experienced this grace once, and man, it was cool. But now things have kind of become miserable because they're trying to do it all on their own. Grace saves us. Grace grows us. Grace sends us. And grace keeps us. And it is all because of the precious blood of Christ. It's all because of what he did, guys. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. The same way you received him as Lord, continue to walk in him. Just as you received him, Lord, I'm a sinner, I need mercy. And he saved you. Continue to walk in him every day. Lord, I'm a sinner, I need mercy. That's how... That's how we go forward in the, grace, in the grace of God. And this is how the church for 2,000 years, um, I'm sure there's more you could add to it, but primarily this is how the church under the sovereign goodness of God has survived, and not just survived, but thrived in the midst of Babylon is through faithful workers, faithful men and women who were firmly planted, as he says in verse 12, stand firm in it that were firmly planted in an unfailing gospel, a gospel that at the center is Jesus Christ and the grace that he provides. Amen? Worship team, you can come up, and we're going to close. And I, I just want to read just one more passage of Scripture. I know I read a lot of Scripture today, uh, but I don't really apologize for that. <laughs> um, but there's one more passage. Again, I, we ended talking about Babylon in Revelation chapter 17, but I was saving chapter 18 in the book of Revelation for us here as we close this morning. And I just want to read part of Revelation 18 and then also into 19. Again, remembering Babylon, evil city, New Jerusalem, good city, Babylon, great prostitute, the bride of Christ, the people of God. Revelation chapter 18, he says, After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, and he says this, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. 
Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Going on in chapter 18, a little while later, he says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, and he threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence, and it will be found no more. Beginning at chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke of her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, praise all you his servants who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Listen, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself, not as the prostitute, drinking wine and in scarlet, but it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen are the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Men and women, do you know this morning, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you will be invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb? The only way you get invited is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the shed blood of Christ alone. That's it. And that's why we gather every single week to worship. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for this story that we're a part of, that we just scratched the surface of here this morning, Lord. Father, I pray with all my might for the power of your Holy Spirit to help us live faithfully in the midst of Babylon. Please, Lord. Lord Jesus, I have no I have no special defense against it just because I'm a pastor. I have no special defense against it just because I've, 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 I've known you for 20 years. Lord, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. I need you every day. I need every day to worship you, to encounter you through your word and through your spirit. Father, I pray that you would make us a people that know that we are chosen to live in the midst of this corrupt an evil city, Lord, all around the world. Help us to be faithful, God, for your honor and for your glory because of the beautiful name of Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. You guys stand with me and let's just continue to worship. If you're helping serve communion, you can come. On the night that Jesus was betrayed,
he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood in the new covenant. As often as you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me.